Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. Uh, let me apologize in advance for my voice. I've developed some kind of nasty cough, which hopefully I will keep at bay tonight, but just a, a pre-warning that that's where things are at. Hope your weekend is going well. Thank you for <clears throat> joining me tonight. I wanted to start off by talking about an article put out by Matt Duss, who is the foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, as we have discussed before on this show, <clears throat> is among the self-identified progressives who voted in lockstep and in unison <laughs> with the Republican Party leadership and every neocon in Washington and every other Democrat in Congress and most Republicans, with the small exception of a, of a, of a few dozen or several dozen, to approve $40 billion more for the Ukraine proxy war, which, as we've discussed on the show before, is, in my opinion, alarming for so many reasons. The very fact that progressives are on board with giving this massive gift to the military-industrial complex that they've always claimed to oppose at a time when there's so much suffering here at home that needs to be addressed. Uh, more than half of that $40 billion will go right to the hands of, <clears throat> excuse me, of weapons manufacturers. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, the squad, and every other member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus not only voted to uh, approve this bill, but didn't even bother to explain, explain their votes and didn't bother to explain how this $40 billion, most of it on the military, in, in, in the form of military spending, will not make a very dangerous situation already worse. I mean, already, the Ukraine proxy war has been catastrophic, primarily for Ukrainians. And uh, it's becoming clear now in media reporting that the, although the Ukrainian side has had some successes and has stood up to Russia in ways that were not expected, or at least not widely expected, uh, that still, Russia, just by virtue of its size and location, has an overwhelming advantage, and Ukraine is taking heavy losses. And so this idea that pouring more money uh, into weapons for this conflict will help anybody just seems to be, in my opinion, suicidal and only sentencing more Ukrainians to death. And none of these progressives have bothered to explain why they voted to approve this bill, why they think that actually the dangers are not there and that this is a good decision. They just haven't even bothered to tell us. So <clears throat> in the absence of that, <coughs> Matt Duss, who is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, uh, presumably gave Bernie's point of view, although he doesn't necessarily speak for Bernie, but he is his advisor on foreign policy. And Matt Duss wrote an article <clears throat> in The New Republic called Why Ukraine Matters for the Left. And he basically makes the argument that it's the progressive position, it should be the progressive position, to support the Ukraine proxy war. And he also goes out of his way to attack those who disagree, including uh, the Gray Zone, the outlet that I work for. Uh, who, and he calls us several names in a very short amount of time, which is very interesting to me, and I'll get to. But obviously the name-calling and the insults are not the most important part of this piece. The most important part is the fact that a self-identified progressive <clears throat> is so adamant about why progressives should support a neocon proxy war. And I don't think Matt Duss individually is a very influential person on the left, but Bernie Sanders is. I mean, he's pretty much been the leader of the left 
since 2016. And so insofar as Matt Dess's views represent Bernie's views and represent the views of a significant force inside the progressive movement, which, you know, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is, I mean, they are officially the elected representatives of progressives. I think Matt Dess's arguments are worth grappling with. And <clears throat> I'll do that here. And I'm also writing an article about this, which I will publish on my Substack this week. So I won't go through everything, but let me just go through a few things that Matt Dess says and that I think are, are wrong. Um, so first he says that uh, the provision of military aid to Ukraine, quote, can advance a more just and humanitarian global order. That's the premise for his article. And he goes on to say that the Biden administration has done a great job. He says this, for example, quote, uh, the Biden administration is not the Bush administration. <clears throat> the Biden team clearly did not seek this war and in fact made a strenuous and very public diplomatic effort to avert it. Okay, that's Matt Dess's claim. Um, endorsing the Biden administration's approach so far to the war and claims that they tried to avoid it. Now, what's incredible about him claiming that the uh, Biden administration attempted to pursue diplomacy with Russia is that even top Biden administration officials admit that they did no such thing. There was a recent interview uh, by a website called War on the Rocks with a top Biden official named Derek Cholet or Derek Cholet. He also served under Obama and he, his job title is state department counselor. So he's basically a top advisor to Antony Blinken, very influential. And uh, you know, also a top official in the Obama administration as well. So I think it's fair to say he speaks for the Biden administration's policy. And Cholet was asked in this interview by war on the rocks, <clears throat> whether or not the core issue, when it comes to Russia's concerns to avert a war of NATO expansion was on the table in pre-invasion discussions with Russia. So he was asked, was NATO expansion on the table? And Cholet said, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And Cholet said this, um, that the White House, quote, made clear to the Russians that we were willing to talk to them on issues that we thought were genuine concerns they have that were legitimate in some way. And to uh, Cholet, this includes arms control. But when it comes to the what he calls, quote, the future of Ukraine and also its membership in NATO, Cholet says that this was a non-issue. So in other words, this was not something that the Biden administration was willing to discuss. So basically, to Matt Duss, a refusal by the Biden administration to even discuss Russia's core demands and instead that to only uh, allow discussion of issues that the White House itself decides are legitimate, to use Cholet's words, on Russia's behalf. He says we'd only discuss legitimate issues. That, in, in Matt Duss's rendering, is what he calls, quote, a strenuous diplomatic effort. So basically, we will not discuss any of your core demands, and we're only going to discuss the issues that we deem to be legitimate and that, in Matt Dust's view, is, is a strenuous diplomatic effort. And so what, what there is there, I think, is an incredible hegemonic hubris. This idea that, you know, other countries like Russia are not equal, their concerns are not valid, and that we're going to decide what concerns of theirs are valid. And anything short of that is, is, is off the table. And so 
the only the only way you can see Biden making a strenuous diplomatic effort is if you take for granted that we have the right to decide what diplomacy should entail, and that other parties' concerns, such as NATO expansion, are not even worth discussing because that was the Biden administration's official stance. Okay, so so that's how Biden discusses. Uh, that's how does discuss I discusses Biden's pre-invasion diplomacy. Um, he also says this. He says, quote, as of this writing, I have seen no evidence of a settlement in the offing, as in a deal that Putin <clears throat> would actually entertain, let alone ex- accept, that we're refusing to push for. So Dust is basically saying here that not only did the Biden administration do all it could to avoid a war, but since the war began, there's been no serious proposal put forward that the Biden administration has rejected. So in other words, you know, we're doing everything we can. We did everything we could to avoid a war. And now we're doing all we can to stop the war. But there's just been no serious proposal on the table that could stop it. Well, again, you can only say that if you ignore what has actually happened. And multiple times, Russia has put forward its demands. Um, I will quote to you uh, one such example. This is from Reuters in uh, um, earlier this year. Let me just find this quote here. Mm. Um, Okay, here we go. So this is Reuters, uh, two weeks into the invasion. So in early March, okay, reporting on Russia's demands to stop the war. Just two weeks into the war. Um, Russia has told Ukraine it is ready to halt military operations in a moment if Kiev meets a list of conditions. According to the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, Moscow is demanding, quote, that Russia, that, sorry, Moscow is demanding, quote, that Ukraine cease military action, change its constitution to enshrine neutrality, acknowledge Crimea as Russian territory, and recognize the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. So those have been the Russian offers pretty much since the start of the war, in this case, two weeks in. And Dust is claiming that there's been no reasonable settlement put on the table. But really, if you look at what Russia is proposing here, the only new condition here is the last one, which is that Ukraine recognized the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. That is a new condition that Russia has asked for that it was not asking for in the months before the invasion. But, and while you could say that that's, you know, that it's, it's, that we don't like that Russia is trying to use force to take, you know, to basically force the separation of territory from Ukraine, that's true and it shouldn't be happening. But the problem is to, to, to condemn that as just a, um, something that is reckless, you have to ignore the fact that for the eight years before the war, there was something called the Minsk Accords, which would have kept Donetsk and Lugansk as a part of Ukraine, not as independent states. It only would have granted them autonomy within Ukraine. And Russia supported those efforts. I think that's widely agreed upon. I don't think you'll find people who will say that Russia tried to subvert the Minsk Accords. So why didn't we have the Minsk Accords implemented? Well, Ukraine, as we've talked about, refused to implement them. And that is because the right wing inside Ukraine, the far right, essentially threatened to overthrow any government that would implement Minsk, whether it was Poroshenko or his predecessor, 
Zelensky. And it's been obvious all along, and Stephen F. Cohen pointed this out to me in 2019, that unless the U.S. uses its own leverage to get Kiev to implement Minsk, that it was never going to happen and that disaster would ensue, which is exactly what has happened. So, yes, if you don't like that now Russia is asking that these breakaway republics um, be recognized as, as independent, um, not not even part of Russia, but as independent states, then what you should have been doing is supporting the Minsk Accords and urging Kiev to implement them in the eight years before the war. And unfortunately, that moment has passed, and it's too bad. But what Dust does is he completely ignores that. Uh, and he also ignores that what is the Russia is asking for now uh, is something that most people uh, claim is negotiable. For example, Ukrainian neutrality. Even Zelensky says that that's negotiable. So to call all this not reasonable is, again, to ignore the actual developments that have happened. And so Dusk goes on. He says a bunch of other things that I think are false and that I will correct in my article that I'll put out this week. Um, but I'll, I'll say just one more thing. He he goes out of his way for some reason to attack the gray zone, which is the outlet that I, I work for. He says this. <clears throat> um, it's important. <coughs> sorry, pardon my voice, everybody. This cough is, uh, is, is tough. He says this, quote, <clears throat> it's, important to, it's important to differentiate between the genuine anti-war imperialism of the DSA and others in the American left and the pernicious authoritarian agitprop of the gray zone and the like. The right's goal is to divide the left, and we should not help them. But the goal of building a stronger left is served by identifying, engaging, and organizing with those genuinely acting on principles of solidarity, democracy, and human rights, and not wasting time with atrocity-denying grifters and click-baiting provocateurs, which I assume is a reference to myself and Max Blumenthal and those who we work with. Um, and look, you know, I, I don't even know what to say here. It's like, we get called names all the time. If anybody has some actual substantive critiques of anything we do at the gray zone, then they should put them out and show why, for example, we try, we deny atrocities and in his view are clickbaiting provocateurs. The articles that he links to, to try to, to support his claim are two blog posts about the gray zone, um, that are just like one of them tries to suggest that we're Kremlin agents and assets because Max Blumenthal went to a conference put on by RT in 2015. <laughs> so that's the level of like uh, seriousness we're dealing with here. No actual arguments against our own views and the, and the reporting that we do. And I just curious that he felt the need to go out of his way to call us names like that. Um, <clears throat> I think what he's saying when he says there is, um, uh, no point in wasting time. I think what he's saying there is he will not debate us. And we're so beyond the pale in his view uh, that to even debate with us is a waste of time. Well, I disagree. I want to debate these issues and I don't want to get into name calling. There's plenty of names I can think of for someone like Matt Duss. It's funny, for example, that he calls independent journalists grifters when he is someone who's working inside the D.C., apparatus. He was up for a job at the State Department recently under the Biden administration, but he didn't ultimately get it. Um, and that's fine. I don't fault anybody for working within the machine if that's what they have to do. But to attack people who work in independent journalism, who have a long track record, I think, I mean, I'm biased here, obviously, of putting out solid journalism, 
that is not challenged on the facts, I think that is a sign on his part that he can't actually challenge us on the facts. Instead, he has to resort to smears, which I think is sad and I think reflects poorly on him. So um, that's my take on Matt Dust. I'll have more to say on that when I write an article about it. And um, let me say a word about the Michael Sussman trial. We discussed it in the last episode, which we did on Wednesday. Um, I'll just say that uh, the narrative we're getting that this was that Michael Sussman's acquittal is a huge loss for the Durham probe is really off base. First of all, Durham really undercharged Michael Sussman. He was only accused of one count of lying to the FBI. And it was a very difficult case to prove in part because the best piece of evidence that Durham has had was ruled inadmissible. And that was a text message that Michael Sussman sent to his FBI contact, Jim Baker, when he was coming in for a meeting uh, to meet with Jim Baker to present with him this fake Trump-Russia Alpha Bank allegation. Michael Sussman texted to Jim Baker. He said, I'm not coming on behalf of any client, um, which was a straight-up lie. He was coming on behalf of Hillary Clinton uh, to um, you know, push this fake Alpha Bank story. And so that's the lie right there, caught. But Durham wasn't. Al- but the jury was not allowed to weigh that text message. The jury could only weigh uh, the the dueling recollections of both Michael Sussman and Jim Baker, and whether or not in their meeting Michael Sussman presented himself as someone acting on behalf of Clinton or not. And so, for a jury, it's impossible. Like, how are you going to choose one person's recollection over another? And the fact that you had the lie documented in the text message didn't matter because the jury wasn't allowed to weigh it. And regardless of the verdict, the fact is this this case put into the public record facts. And those facts, like everything else Russiagate, are damning for those who perpetrated it. They show the level of cooperation between the FBI and the Clinton campaign, which, by the way, was a major part of the problem with Durham's case, is that he's trying to say that, Dur- that Michael Sussman fooled the FBI when he said he, w- he was not acting on behalf of his client, when really the FBI knew all along exactly who he was working for. The real problem is that the FBI was in on Michael Sussman's lie. Not the Michael Sussman lie, but the, the FBI was in on it. So Durham's case was basically based on a false premise. But nonetheless, in the process, a lot of facts have come out about the extent of that cooperation, the extent to which the FBI and the Clinton campaign essentially colluded, to use a uh, familiar term, to frame Trump and concoct this fake scam. And even when they knew that so much of the material that was being fed from the Clinton campaign to the FBI was fallacious, the FBI essentially covered that up and kept the investigation going for multiple years. And so even though it ended in an, in an acquittal, so much important information has gotten into the public record, including, by the way, on the allegation that I care most about. Because everybody now knows that collusion was a scam. <clears throat> That's Everybody but the most diehard MSNBC hosts and Blue and On cult members know that collusion was a scam. But what has still endured is the claim that Russia hacked the emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. And I've never ruled that out, but the more information that has come out, I've been increasingly skeptical. And among the information that has come out is the fact that the firm that first made the allegation that it was Russia was none other than CrowdStrike. And CrowdStrike is a private firm that was hired by none other than Michael Sussman. And the FBI relied extensively on CrowdStrike's work. And what I'm hoping is that uh, as this as the Durham investigation goes on, 
he will go there because whether or not you can prove something criminal or not, I do think it's outrageous that the nation's top law enforcement agency for such a, a, a pivotal national security investigation of whether or not a, a hostile foreign power stole these emails. I think it's a scandal that they relied on a contractor working for the Clinton campaign and managed by Michael Sussman, who has since been accused of lying to the FBI. That's a scandal on its own, whether you can prove criminality or not. So <clears throat> I'll take some calls now. Apologies again for my raspy voice. It's the cough and uh, hopefully it'll be better for next time. All right, Thomas, you are up. Oh, um, Hey Aaron. Um, I, I was sort of, uh, I had a question based on sort of the, the left's overall response to, um, the war in Ukraine. Um, and not just, uh, Matt does who, uh, obviously, uh, I, I agree with, you know, your critiques of his response. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, if Lenin saw imperialism as not just like a foreign policy decision, but sort of an epoch that called for, or that pointed towards the necessity of socialism. Do you feel like the left has responded to that task well overall? You know, I'm not a Leninist and I, I've actually never really read much Lenin. So it's, I can't really speak to your question too well, Fair. but, Fair. but overall, um, how has the left responded to the Ukraine proxy war? Well, because it's stalwarts like Bernie Sanders are voting to fund it. It's been very difficult. And, you know, one of my biggest critiques of the, of the Mueller era was that it was furthering this process of completely neutering the left. Like under the Bush administration, there was an anti-war movement. You know, I, I was here in New York city when there was a huge march around the RNC against the Iraq war. It was an exciting time. And Obama came into power and Obama was like, all right, everybody, I got this, you know, everyone go home. And so Obama helped kill the anti-war movement. And, you know, he did that also by turning to drone wars and dirty wars like in Syria, whereas, you know, like, like wherein you cause the damage of a, you know, of a, of a war, but you do it more uh, clandestinely. You do it with a middleman. Like in Syria, it was insurgent death squads. In Libya, it was working with NATO. And, um, and air, and airstrikes, not sending in ground forces. So, um, and then Russiagate by making the CIA and the FBI all of a sudden, like the people we're supposed to worship and the people who are the answer to authoritarianism and to Trump. And we all have to just sit at home and watch MSNBC and wait for the next Mueller bombshell to drop. Um, and then also, most importantly, I think this like animating view that like diplomacy with Russia is bad and that anything that we do that quote stands up to Russia is somehow a defense of democracy. All of this has really encouraged this culture on the left now where jingoism and, uh, and confrontation with Russia is encouraged and it's seen as like a good thing. And that's, I think how you get to every single congressional progressive voting for the Ukraine proxy war. And so much of the left in the U S is identified with people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. So when they see them voting for it, there's no sort of outside force that's willing to break with them and organize. And that's why we haven't seen, you know, I mean, hardly any protests. So overall, how has the left responded? It's been a complete 
abdication of responsibility. And the right has seized the moment. There are people on the right who are much more forcefully opposing the proxy war than anybody on the left. And that's, uh, to me, as a leftist, that's, that's sad. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that's a, that's a very uh, important critique. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Rodrigo. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Cool. Uh, first off, I just want to say a good job on, good job with Ryan Grimm. I, <laughs> this week I enjoyed that video on rising. Um, the second question, second point I wanted to make is, is there any chance that the gray zone will hit uh, Capitol Hill anytime soon before the midterm elections to try and confront the squad about their $40 billion package, the vote on that uh, for Ukraine anytime before the midterm elections. And uh, the last thing I wanted to ask is um, I just want to hear your thoughts about, um, I I heard that or I read an article basically saying that Washington approved um, M142 high mobility rockets to Ukraine. Um, Do you think there's legitimacy to the risk that Ukraine could use those rockets to hit cities in Moscow that could potentially escalate to a high, uh, to World War Three, essentially? I, I absolutely think there's that risk. There, there always is. You know, anything can happen in war. Even if, even if every single U.S. official and every single Ukrainian official has taken these rockets and has nothing but the best of intentions, is only going to use them inside Ukraine, anything can happen. I mean, war is so unpredictable. So I think that was a reckless move. And yes, the U.S. says that Ukrainians have pinky sweared that they're not going to fire inside of Russia. But, but you never know. I mean, things happen during war that you just can't predict. So, yeah, I am concerned about that risk. And uh, I think it was <clears throat> especially given, again, even if you um, don't think that Russia was provoked at all. I mean, again, I think Russia was provoked. I don't think they should. I don't support their invasion. I, I can't believe they had no option but to invade. But look, regardless of that, the fact is, um, I agree with what Obama laid out when he was president and what Anthony Blinken said when he was working for Obama in the State right. Department, which is that Russia, no matter what, will always have overwhelming military force, no matter how many weapons you put in. And we're seeing that now. Now the truth is getting out. But things are not as rosy for the Ukrainian side as we've been told. Three months into the war, the, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post are finally putting out pieces where, you know, and, the, and Zelensky is admitting, he said recently that they're losing at least 60 soldiers a day. That's a, that's a huge uh, number. It's probably more. So the idea that these rockets will even make a difference, I don't think so. I think the only thing they do is create more risk of, of disaster. So um, that's my take on that. And in terms of interviewing members of the squad. Absolutely. I mean, Max Blumenthal is in DC. He's done a lot of that before. He really enjoys doing that. And I'm sure he'll take every opportunity he can. The problem is they've made it a lot more difficult. It used to be very easy to go over to the Hill and interview members of Congress, but now it's like, it's a lot harder. There's, there's more, I mean, and they've, I think they've done that in the name of January 6th, but really I, I think they're just scared of, especially (laughs) if you're, if you're a progressive who's just voted, for $40 billion for a proxy war. There's a reason none of them put out a statement explaining explaining why they did it, because they can't justify it. it, except for Cori Bush, she did. But her own statement actually only contained more reasons why it was a terrible idea to do it. She was like, I'm worried about the danger of military escalation, and also this is going to enrich the defense industry. But so anyway, so, uh, but 
Um, Max, absolutely, I think, will try to interview people. He, he's, he, did, he always does a great job of it. Most recently, he interviewed Ro Khanna, and Ro Khanna afterwards accused him of parroting RT talking points, which he then deleted. <laughs> That's all these people can do in response, is just accuse us of you know, working for Russia or, or parroting uh, a Russian talking points. So anyway, um, and I, if I have the opportunity, I, I will as well. But I, I'm not there in D.C., so I don't know if I'll be able to. For sure. And yeah, I uh, hope you guys are able to. Uh, you guys did such a good job with Rokana. He's my congressman. And uh, I think thanks for that interview. I don't think I'll ever be voting for him again. But yeah, uh, thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I'm not trying to encourage people to vote either way, but I just I find the U-turn of people like Rokana unbelievable. I mean, he co-sponsored bills to ban U.S. military assistance to the Azov Battalion. And he talked about the dangers of the U.S further fueling the war in the Donbass back when it was happening before Russia's invasion. Now that Russia's invaded, it's like he's forgot all of that. It's, it's a pretty <laughs> striking turnaround. Right. But, but honestly, among these people, it's one we're going to have to get used to. You know, I, um, I had more faith in this. I have to admit I was naive. I had more faith in the squad than a lot of my colleagues did like Max. And I've been proven wrong. They it's, I mean, if you can't vote against a $40 billion proxy war bill, I just don't. It's, it blows my mind how you can call yourself a progressive. It, it really does. Exactly. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Okay, CJ. And CJ, if you're there, there's a mic. There you go. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hi. Hi. Good talking to you. Um, so next up for, for the... CJ, you're a little quiet. Are you on Bluetooth? Yes, I am. Okay. I have a problem. Yeah, try... Uh, Try turning it off and talking directly into your phone. Oh, thank you. No worries. You know what? I'm having a. I'll just. I'll. Uh, I'll get you some other time, Aaron. Have a good night here. I'm... Okay. All right. Thanks okay. for calling. Okay, Alex. <clears throat> Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yep. Aaron. Yep. We can. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm a. So once again, I'm a. I'm a Ukrainian, and I think that as good as the arguments for you know, quickly wrapping up this war are uh, like, you know, getting the global economy back on track, you know, preventing more lives from being lost. I don't think the arguments being made for in the war are good enough to convince Western liberals that it's a good, that it's a good idea to negotiate an end to this war. Like I remember last year in the summer of last year, I saw an interview with Zelensky and he gave an interview to a sort of a, uh, propaganda network that was established by the Ukrainian government to like reach out to people in the separatist territories and in Crimea. And in it, he spoke Russian, which by 2021 was pretty unusual. And he essentially said, like, look, if you consider yourself, if you identify, you live in these territories and you identify as a Russian, you should leave. And oh, by then he was already arresting all of his political opponents. I mean, the guy was just becoming an absolute dictator. His approval ratings were tanking. And I think if more Westerners like realize what Ukraine really has been like, like the military dictatorship that it's been for the past, you know, eight plus years, I think there would be a lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners who would, you know, not necessarily support the war, the Russian war. I, I think Putin obviously completely lost his mind, but they think there'd be a lot of Westerners who would look at Ukraine and be like, look, you have done, you guys have done everything in your power to not prevent this war from starting. 
Like you have refused to implement Minsk. You've done everything in your power to make the lives of the Crimeans and the separatists as miserable as possible. It's time for you to, it, we're not going to support you. And, and I think that this, these kinds of arguments need to be made. That like Ukraine, like, like if, if you try to make it, uh, you know, the argument in Ukraine that, you know, we should negotiate, that we should wrap this war up, make these concessions to Russia, which let's be honest, but Ukraine will never get Crimea and the separate ter- territories back ever. Like even before the, maybe before the war began, I thought that maybe one day it would be a possibility, but now it's impossible. I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, look, Crimea, everyone knows that. Everyone knows that Crimea is not really. I think a lot of people, a lot of, including a lot of Ukrainians, like I remember I was speaking to a relative of mine the other day and they're like, why the heck should we, I said to me, why the heck should we give up Crimea? And I explained to him, well, the Ukrainians government's made them very clear that if Crimea ever returns to Ukraine, that they will, the people of Crimea will be treated like traitors and it's going to be a lot of revenge right. and it's going to be a bloodbath. And he didn't, and he didn't know that. So even a lot of Ukrainians don't understand that, you know, Crimea is never coming back. Right. You know, in, and, uh, and definitely most Americans don't. Most Americans yeah. think that, you, that Crimea is, you know, Crimea is like occupied by Russia and that they want, they yearn to return back to a free democratic Ukraine. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think yeah. this is, if more people understood this, which virtually nobody does, just kind of, which is, it just shows you what an iron grip the establishment sure. uh, has over the, sort of over the minds of, you know, Westerners. Uh, um, absolutely. You know, in John Bolton's memoir of the Trump administration, he says that when they met with Putin, that Putin told them, told Bolton and Trump, that Obama had said he was cool with Russia keeping Crimea at a certain point. I believe that. Now, um, that could be John Bolton lying, uh, could be Putin lying, but that's what John Bolton says. And, you know, like there has been, from what I gather a sort of tacit understanding amongst at least the European countries, maybe not the U S that Crimea is not going back and they're willing to accept that. But yeah, no, um, you can't talk about that here. We're supposed to. And, and, and the problem is, you know, for most people, they don't know the history of Crimea. They don't know. It used to be, you know, it was given to Crimea by whoever Khrushchev, like all that history. And there have been votes in Crimea, even well before 2014, there have been votes. Actually, well, you don't even need to know the history. You just need yeah. to know that if Crimea is coming back, to, if go ever for whatever reason return to Ukraine, it's going to be a bloodbath. And I think if people just knew that, that very simple, really obvious fact to anybody who follows Ukrainian politics, which, to be fair, the English language uh, coverage of Ukraine domestic politics has been absolutely pathetic. I mean, if you read Russian propaganda, you will get like a better view of what's been happening inside Ukraine and just the absolute dictatorship it's been for the past eight years than if you read any, you know, Western, apart from maybe a few like leftist, like world socialist website or the gray zone for that matter. Then maybe you'll know that, you know, maybe Ukraine is not this liberal. Like I remember even John Mearsheimer said that Russia is afraid of Ukraine because it's a liberal democracy. Like, I mean, I, I, I think Jordan Schreimer is pretty okay, but like the fact that someone is, you know, informed and smart as him would say something that just misinformed, for lack of a better term, is just kind of just shows you how horrifically terrible the, I think, the West's understanding of Ukraine truly is. I mean, it's right. a dictatorship. No, it does not excuse the war. I mean, Putin and like his advisors have absolutely lost his mind. But yeah. still. Yeah. Um, Alex, thanks very much for the call. Appreciate All it. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Andrew. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Regarding the uh, regarding the uh, high Mars going to Ukraine, um, 
and long-range, high-mobility rocket systems, multiple launch rocket systems. The U.S. is only giving them, I think, one battery with uh, six six rockets able to launch at once. So this is not a significant contribution. Okay. Um, even across all of NATO, I think maybe there's a, a dozen. Even if you gave them 50, it probably it would be more significant, but it wouldn't change the outcome. Um, but, however, what's important to point out that I don't think many people have seen is that Putin recently said that if the West keeps arming Ukraine with these long-range missile systems, that he's going to, Russia will hit targets that they never dared contemplate hitting before. So that's worth thinking about, at least, perhaps. My question to you regarding uh, Mr. Duss is... In the future, I think this kind of Ukraine war is going to wrap up in a way that's uh, the, the the fate is determined. But there's things in the horizon, specifically China and Taiwan, where uh, there's a lot left to be determined how that's going to go. And if I'm not saying China would do this, but if they did launch an invasion, I'd like to know what Dust would say is the progressive position in that scenario. Would it also be uh, arming and defending this country, this so-called country, because, I mean, is it really that much of a stretch? You know, two years ago, I would have said, how could any progressive, you know, support some kind of adventurous war way off in the middle of Asia? And now, after Ukraine, and seeing that people like Duss and Bernie are so effective at, and really the squad are effective at sheepdogging so many progressives into war, I, I don't uh, I don't see it as out of the realm of possibility that he would say the progressive position is to essentially apologizing for Biden and saying, yes, we would need to arm them. And yes, perhaps we would even need to militarily intervene because that's Dust's job. It's just to sheepdog people into accepting Biden's position that are progressives. I think that's a great question. And I'd love to see him answer it. Um, and if he doesn't support a similar policy for Taiwan, why not? What makes Taiwan different from from from, from Ukraine. exactly um, except for the fact that Russia has way more nukes and so um, which makes the Russia Ukraine situation even more dangerous even more potentially catastrophic but yeah um, that's a great question I, and I China would be going after all of Taiwan you know Russia's not even yeah. saying they want to take Kiev so how could we not yeah that's I a mean, good point the, the principle would have to stand there so no one's yeah. ever going to ask him that question i know you would but he's going to run from you forever and just call you no, russian so that's a, thanks that's for your work Aaron. yeah thank you and, that's a and also you know russia is seeking ultimately ukraine's neutrality that's its core demand and china in taiwan is not seeking neutrality it would actually be seeking to swallow it so it's a great question i'd be curious to see what matt does has to say but i'll never get an answer because as you say he'll never debate so we'll have to leave it up to the imagination Laura. Hello, young man. Hello. I live in Alaska. I'm going to try and make this as fast as I can. I was born in 1945, just after the Second World War, here in Alaska. My father and my grandfather both fought in World War One and Two. I've seen a lot of change since Nixon. I'm not going to try and go too far here, honey. Um... We are a multinational corporation that masquerades as a nation. And I see a lot of what's going on at the World Economic Forum. And I watch the global shifting. And we're moving towards multipolarity. The United States is greatest debtor. We owe our greatest debt to China. 
they give us free, pretty much free stuff. We built their economy. The reason why we're attacking Russia now is because they do have the nukes. China does not. I need to wonder in my own head how much of the Klaus Schwab, whose father was a Nazi um, collaborator in a factory that made um, blowtorch, not blowtorch, fire. Um, well, I'm sorry, honey. Um, Flamethrowers in the war. Russia. Nobody remembers in America that Russia was the reason why we won the World War. The United States was the last to enter. Yep. We are the most propagandized people. Mm -hmm. We don't have correct history. It's not taught in school. I sent you via Twitter a link to Garland Dixon speaking with the Duran as also with um, Vips. Um, yes, you're. Yes, that um, was uh, uh, Garland. I saw that Garland Dixon spoke to good, uh, Ray. Good. Good. I'm spoke, glad spoke, because spoke to Ray McGovern. It, spoke to Ray it, McGovern and Alexander Mercurius of the Duran. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, but it was also with um, just recently. I mean, it was with um, the older man. <laughs> Yeah, Ray McGovern. Thank you. Ray yeah. McGovern. The reason why I sent it to you is because it does cover both the subjects you're talking about today, and it was mm -hmm. important because it really speaks upon how much involved the FBI is. It when was embedded. It had an office in that damn Perkins Coy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay, so yep. what this shows people, if they pay attention to your work and the work of people like Garland Dixon, is that we don't have a government. We are not a democracy. And when they dissuade themselves and look at what we have as a reality, instead of what we think we're, we have or we're told we have, or it's not reality. There are other factors that go into geopolitics that does not have the United States, the only thing we are is a military for rent. And if Yemen hasn't taught anybody that by now, then I don't know what else to tell anybody. But I appreciate you, young man. I wanted to say that before I go, that um, for your sore throat, please use some warm water and salt and gargle, honey, three times. It's a plan. And it'll it's be a good. Plan. All right. Thank I'll you do that. for everything. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate that. Thanks so much for calling. And I will, I will link to that Garland Dixon interview with Alexander McCurris and Ray McGovern that you mentioned. So people can watch Thank that. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Okay. And <clears throat> and there you go, Anne. Hi. Hi guys. Sorry. Sorry about that. I, I'm not used to. Um, so uh, I, Wanted to do two things. One is uh, you've used the chain of custody analogy for why um, the whole idea that the that the FBI would um, rely on CrowdStrike's imaging of the DNC servers is ridiculous. Um, I actually used that analogy, slightly different version. 
man calls police to report his wife has been killed, a gash in her head. And he says, don't bother sending people to the house. I'll hire my own investigator. And I used that with Malcolm Nance at the American Library in Paris when he gave a talk on October 3rd of 2018 on his book that was called, oh gosh, I can't find it right now. But at any rate, then he just proceeded to lie and, you know, forget about it. But at any rate, I think that all roads do lead to the Hillary campaign. And I really would love for you to knock down the third pillar, which is the so-called hack of the DNC. And I know that you've talked about Sean Henry's testimony, which he gave in December of 2017, saying they saw, he saw no emails exfiltrated. Of course, the president of CrowdStrike making that statement under oath. But I think, too, it is important to pay attention to Bill Binney's description that if there had been a hack, the NSA would have picked it up. And obviously that did not happen. And a third thing is maybe you're familiar with Integrity on his Twitter handle. He calls himself Adam Carter. But all the forensics he's done and showing multiple saving of documents, and it was Trump opposition research, something that they wouldn't care was, you know, went out. So this whole Guccifer II ridiculousness. So anyway, I'm hoping you will dig into that because so many lies suggest that that's a lie, too. And Julian Assange's freedom, to some degree, hinges upon exposing that lie. Thank you. Well, yeah. First of all, on Malcolm Nance, he's currently in Ukraine claiming to be fighting for freedom on the Ukrainian side. And really, he's just actually sitting in a house and doing inter- doing media interviews. He said, I'm done talking. I'm going over to fight. And of course, as soon as he got there, he just resumed talking. Except this time, instead of wearing a suit on MSNBC, he's in military fatigues. And so that's Malcolm Nance. And uh, so no surprise he gave you a disingenuous answer. He's one of the biggest liars, Russiagate liars there is. He said so many crazy things. Um, you know, on the... Uh, issue of hacking. Listen, I, I spent a lot of time on this. I wrote my first lengthy article on it in um, July 2019 for real for real clear investigations. It's called Crowd Strikeout. <clears throat> I'll link to it. And I, you know, I go through some of the evidence that is available, including that you touched on. Um, the timeline for Guccifer 2.0 makes sense. Like Russia, uh, uh, Mueller suggests in his, in his report that it was Guccifer 2.0 who gave the stolen data to WikiLeaks. Um, But uh, the problem with this timeline is that by the time Guccifer 2.0 and Assange first made contact, Assange had already announced that he had the stolen emails. So Mueller's timeline even there is implausible on top of all the other evidence that, that has come out. And, um, you know, look, I, I, I've focused on trying to get documents from the government because that to me is the most, you know, credible, reliable source. And I've put forward a number of FOIA requests, especially to get the CrowdStrike reports that we've never been allowed to see. And that Michael Sussman personally redacted before they were given to the FBI. So not only did the FBI rely on the Hillary Clinton contracted CrowdStrike 
but they also relied on a CrowdStrike that whose work was redacted and essentially scrubbed by Michael Sussman, who basically decided for himself what the FBI could and couldn't see. So it, it's scandalous. And of course, the FBI has totally dragged their feet. They won't even acknowledge to me the existence of all of the CrowdStrike reports that I know they have. I know for a fact that they have three. They've only acknowledged to me the existence of one, and they wouldn't show me a single page. So there's obviously a lot more to learn. And um, for me, the best way to do it is through government documents. And if FOIA won't do it, then hopefully John Durham will do the job. And uh, if not John Durham, then, <clears throat> then, then, then Julian Assange. Because Julian Assange does know who gave him the emails, and he has denied it was Russia. So perhaps one day, hopefully, he'll have the opportunity to share with us what he knows. And I suspect it's a major factor in why he's being persecuted. Perhaps there are people who just don't want to ever give him that opportunity to, to make light what he knows. But there also is the fact that he says he won't give up his source. And so, you know, these are the complicating factors there. Yeah, I did point out also to Malcolm Nance the ridiculousness of the of the timeline. Julian Assange, by video, announced he had Hillary's emails on June 12th of 2016. And uh, Goosefer, too, uh, claimed to only make connection with him in, in mid-July. And then just, I think, four days later, they were published. That's not the way WikiLeaks works. It's all just so, it's so obvious a lie. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, and by the way, and even Mueller and even Mueller in his report acknowledges that we can't rule out that the emails were given to Assange via intermediaries, you know, uh, physically, meaning they were not transferred by Guccifer 2.0. So Mueller, he disingenuously suggested that Guccifer transferred the emails to WikiLeaks. But he also, as is always the case with all these claims, he tacitly acknowledges that he, has, he actually has no idea how Assange got the emails. And you know that the the unredacted pages, I don't know if it's 80, uh, 79 to 184, or, uh, sorry, anyway, it's like 15 pages, either 79 to 94 or 179 to 194. Uh, it goes through all the reasons why they could not, they did not have any evidence that uh, WikiLeaks conspired with Russia. And that, of course, was not reported either. You've seen those unredacted pages. Yeah, right, right. That, I, that didn't get released until the eve, I, I believe. And I think I'm right about this. I'll have to go back and double check it, but I'm pretty sure that those did not get released until the eve of the 2020 election. <laughs> so basically right as the election was happening, we finally got that, that piece of information that, uh, that WikiLeaks, that Mueller knew there was, had, had nothing in terms of a conspiracy between uh, WikiLeaks and Roger Stone and, and WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks conspiring with Russia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Sean. And Sean, if you're there, there is a microphone button in the bottom right that you can hit to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll go to Eric. It's Aaron Malte live. Hello, Eric. Hello. With musical guest Matt Duss. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, yes. I want to I wanna give you a little uh, insult. You know, I, uh, I wrote for you. Next time he calls you a name, you, you can call him uh, Matt Dussent. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'll, try, I'll remember that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, I want to I want to make a connection, I guess, though, just between his I mean, you know, I guess you could call it his logic and in what he wrote and sort of the general logic of what appears what passes for U.S. diplomacy. But it's this performative way that you just kind of disqualify people from the conversation and uh, how you argue without arguing. You know, it's, it's another means of, you know. Uh, winning the debate by not actually having to have the debate, and you know he he's he's unpersoning you in the in the political movement or whatever. I mean, it's so you know it's so obvious. Well, you know the the DSA is actually principled opposition to imperialism. It's like yeah, because they're working within the Democratic Party, so you're not going to dismiss them, right? Like, like um, you know, and, uh, uh, and and but it's very similar to just what I mean, what Blinken and you know the whole foreign policy assassin thinks. You know, it's like we're supposed to have you know like a military. For you know, uh, or I should say, a Department of Defense, you know, Department of Offense, right? But um, they're supposed to be the ones who are doing the military negotiations, and then in theory, you have the State Department doing the diplomatic negotiations. But what the State Department does is this anti-diplomacy of diplomacy by refusing to meet with your counterpart. Um, you know, they get asked, "Have you picked up the phone and talked to Lavrov?" I was like, "No." And it's like, okay, well, what is your job exactly here? Um, and but it's it's you know it's endemic. I mean, it's and every I think in every level, I don't think anybody's. I don't know. I mean, I'm so pessimistic about the development of America. I mean, I'll join the club, but so much of you know politics is not. It's politics of personal. You know what was called? Remember the politics of personal destruction. But it's like he's not going to say that you have a principal difference in opinion. It's just you know you you don't. You know, you are not qualified to this discussion. And also, you know, uh, I'm going to try to destroy your career. And um, so, you know, I know you're a very measured person and that your response is going to be just the facts. And that's why we love you, Aaron. But, you know, I mean, you would be well within your right to hit back 10 times harder because that's the Chicago way, you know. <laughs> but um, the other thing um, I wanted to add about that um uh, is that uh, 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 again? It's he's it's him discourse policing, um, but it, the uh, the really important thing about the Matt Dusses of the world, and I'm going to go ahead and throw in you know people who are against force the vote, you know the squad, all these other people, their basic theory of power. Remember when you know Ryan Grimm? He's in the, he's on the list, right? But remember when he was making a name for himself during the last primary because he was talking about well Bernie and Warren, they just have different theories of power, and it's like okay, you know what the you know, Matt does theory of power is the same as the squad's theory of power is that, well, here's what we'll do is we will hew completely closely to whatever the Biden administration wants. And that way, Biden will reward us for our loyalty and we won't get accused of somehow stymieing his agenda because, hey, we were his biggest defenders. And it's like, that's why they don't block vote. You know, that's why they don't go against Pelosi's leadership, you know, the squad that's have five votes, you know, and they could be pulling the rotating villain of the week thing on you know, they could have their own Joe Manchin in the form of, well, this squad member does, isn't ready to, you know, join in on the bill. You know, it's they could be negotiating. They could be negotiating from outside a position of subservience to Biden. But for all of this, what do they get? You know, Matt does gets considered, but doesn't even get the position. You know, Elizabeth Warren doesn't actually get to be get anything from Joe Biden for betraying Bernie. Um, AOC, you know, gets, you know, they, every, they all get blamed anyways. 
Um, you know, what did she actually get out of, you know, playing Mama Bear? Nothing. And the difference yeah. is, is what they want to tell you, the TYTs and the Casperians or whatever but the world want to tell you is, well, if they would have tried, they would have failed. It's like, well, I guess we'll never know because they came up with a reason not to try. Exactly. And, you know, it's like the Simpsons thing. You know, the first step to failing is trying. The rule is never try. <laughs> so, yes, yes, I, yes. And it just speaks to the lack of imagination and the lack of will and the careerism and the, you know, he gets to, you know, I mean, clickbait. I mean, you know what? This guy, he deserves everything, you know, every piece of criticism and more that he's going to get. But well, I, he is going to get it. He's like going to get it, my friend, because I'm going to be uh, writing about Matt, Matt Dust uh, this week on my Substack, and I will be talking about Matt Dust for a long time because he has started something. He he went after us, and so I'm going to respond. And And, and I think the debate that he claims he wants to have is very important because if – being a progressive is going to become synonymous with supporting a neocon proxy war. Count me out. Like I, I can't be a part of that. I, I suspect many people feel the same way. So th this is a very important debate to have. Uh, and so, and by the way, you know, from a, pol a strictly political point of view, even if the only concern is partisan politics, what, like what amazes me about, about these people who all work in politics and are supposed to care about winning over voters is look at 2016. I mean, Trump, Trump, whatever, however you feel about him, he, he ran as an anti-war candidate. Now, I know in office his policies were much different. And you know, part of my critique of Russiagate is that they were overshadowing and, in fact, encouraging Trump's pro-war policies. But on the campaign trail, he talks about how we destroyed Iraq and Libya and Syria and how the people who were bearing the brunt of our foreign wars were not elites in Washington but ordinary citizens. And that's why... In communities where the mil where the rate of military sacrifice, the casualty rate from wars was highest, there was a direct correlation between a high rate of military sacrifice uh, and support for Trump. That, that this, this was a study uh, put up by some people at Brown University um, during the Trump administration. And so even seeing that, you know, politically, being anti-war is a winner. All these people who are supposed to be, you know, shrewd, politicos want to adopt the losing position and uh, not just be a moral position in my point of view to make a value judgment, but in terms of like what's documented now, in terms of where the country is going, it's a losing position. And that's why I think the Republicans who are anti-war right now, I don't think it's just because they're libertarian. I also think they recognize a political opportunity that, you know, the working people of this country are tired of shouldering the burden of war started by, you know, George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and all these people. And the progressive wing of the party wants to go along with the losing side. It's, uh, it's maddening. <clears throat> okay, Eric, well, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. As always, it's great to hear from you. Okay. Mini Ninja Love. And if you're there, there's a microphone button on the bottom right that you pressed. Is that, are, am I on now? Yes, you are. All right. Hi, Aaron. Hi. I think uh, something that everyone's missing here, a key uh, component to the Julian Assange connection in Russiagate is that Craig Murray. Now I know Julian personally, he's a very dear friend of mine. He's not going to give up any sources, but Craig Murray has admitted himself that he was the person that came here and met the contact to get the the um, Hillary emails, um, 
And of course, the FBI wasn't going to interview him because that might reveal too much truth. Um, but that, this angle really needs to be pushed. And I know you guys have um, <clears throat> contacts where you could probably get in touch with Craig, uh, which I think that is something that definitely needs to take place. Another thing that I found really, really weird was when, was it Dana, what was it, Rock Rotenberg, which I can't remember his last name, maybe you can help me out, Aaron, that met with Julian's attorneys in the embassy, um, I guess was going to give Julian a pardon for the exchange of, you know, them saying that they weren't, you know, that it wasn't Russia that gave the uh, the emails, which was very odd to begin with, because Julian had already stated the fact that it wasn't a state actor, and, and nor Russia. Um, but but that that being said, um, there's also you know the new information that's out that Mike Pompeo uh, is being sequestered to you know give a testimony uh, before the Spanish courts in Julian's case. There's also another name in there, which I linked to an NPR article. Uh, please look at that, Aaron, okay? It's in your, in your comment section with the other person that got um, called in. His name was, uh, looking it up, hold on, William Eviney, who is also being sequestered um, to testify. Um, there's a huge connection. Uh, Elvani was assigned to the Snowden case. And he obviously is involved in the Assange case as well. So we need to be looking into him pretty uh, severely. Right. So those are just some, some key things that, are, that need to be out there in the public. Um, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, look, you know, on Craig Murray, I've asked him before. To talk, I've, I've asked him many times, and he he just won't. He after he said what he said, where he said he met with the DNC source. He, I think WikiLeaks told him to shut up. I think they were not happy with him speaking out, and um, I think he's kept to that since. He and he doesn't want to do anything that will betray, betray Julian Assange's confidence. So I don't think we're going to be getting Craig Murray to, to speak anytime soon. Trust me, I, I've tried many times, and yeah. Um, but yeah, look. Yeah. There's, yeah. Th there was undoubtedly, as we know, and it's been confirmed now uh, by Yahoo News and at the, at the Gray Zone had this before, there was a plot, a CIA cell that was targeting Julian Assange and plotting to kidnap and even poison him. And, um, I know that and, and, and some of these people helped sabotage those talks yeah. uh, that, that Dana Rohrabacher was a part of. But look, a part of the problem, I mean, it's not a problem, but Julian Assange, he's a really principled person. And again, when he was offered via Dana Rohrabacher to, you know, a pardon basically to give up his source on the DNC uh, leaks, he said he, he wouldn't do it because he just, because WikiLeaks doesn't give up sources. So Julian's principles um, have, have led, have helped lead to the situation because he's such a principled person. He's so committed to, um, to his beliefs and his principles. And so, and, and then what he did do though, and this is also, this is reported in the Hill. What Julian Assange did do is he said, I'm not going to give you my source, but I am willing to provide you with some technical information that could rule out certain state actors 
as the source of the email. And that was an obvious reference to Russia. And that was done in a back channel involving Senator Mark Warner. And this was in the spring of 2017. And it was none other than Jim Comey, the FBI director, who intervened to stop that. Jim Comey put an end to those talks. So Assange, um, and, and this was, by the way, when they were talking about how to mitigate the impact of the Vault 7 releases because Assange had these damning CIA files that showed, by the way, among other things, how the CIA can impersonate other people when they hack into computers. So it was during those talks that Assange made that offer, and it was Jim Comey that put it into it. Yeah, Jim Comey. What was it? The his book, the name, the Higher Loyalty. The Higher Loyalty. Yeah. You know, yeah. He and, and he quoted in his book, which I thought was interesting. That you know, he based all his investigations and decisions banking that Hillary would win. Of course, which, yes. Of course, didn't you know work out yep. the way it planned? But that's exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from yeah, you. No problem, Aaron. Okay. Bye. All right, Al. Hey, Hi. Aaron. Hey, um, just want to start with some points of agreement. So I'd like to con- um, congratulate you about the Syria article um, and uh, the kudos you got from uh, um, uh, Professor Landis and et cetera. So that was a great, uh, great article. Thanks. So, uh, just to explain that for people who aren't familiar, I wrote an article <laughs> recently for Real Clear Investigations about how the Biden administration, as they're now overseeing this proxy war in Ukraine, what's been overshadowed is the same people, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, Biden, Samantha Power, Derek Cholet, a number of these top officials in the Biden administration. They're now presiding over a proxy war after recently presiding over a different proxy war, and that's in Syria. And that was a disaster for all the reasons that I laid out in the article. And I'll link to it. And we've spoken about it before here on the show. But that, that's what that was. Yep, yep, that was great. And um um, just, just a question. Um, so, um, there's a lot of parallels with what happened in Libya, but it's not very well documented from what I can see in, in, in any, by anybody actually. Um, and whether that's, you know, you have a link about something similar about what happened in Libya, or is there a plan to write something similar? That's one question. The other question is, uh, for both, they all happened about the same time. Libya started in February 2011 and Syria in March of 2011. Uh, but there was a whole, it seems there was a lot of preparation to that for many years. And there's very little about that, you know, about who was behind, what were the powers um, in preparing for these, um, these, these sort of quote-unquote spontaneous um you know, demonstrations, they weren't spontaneous. They, there was preparation to make them happen. And whether there's any plans to write something about that, um, because that, I think that has direct impact, which we disagree on about the things happening in Ukraine. The part I agree with you on Ukraine is what, what happened in 2014. And it was very similar. And these three uh, war, uh, wars, basically, um, the same type of preparation, the same people were involved, et cetera. So, you know, those are parts, uh, points of agreement. Okay, well, um, on the question of whether or not the, the Syria dirty war was pre-planned, I, if I were to bet, yes, but I don't think the evidence is there for it yet. There are people who do think there is sufficient evidence, but I just don't think we've seen it. I mean, there are, we know from cables released by WikiLeaks, and I quote one of them in my article on Syria, uh, 
where they're plotting. This is in 2010, I think. So a year before the Dirty War, maybe two years before. Um, they're plotting about ways to destabilize Assad's government and to expose actually its weaknesses. And one of the one, one of the key uh, uh, areas they decide on as a as a, a way to uh, show Syrian weakness is to show that Syria is incapable of cracking down on Islamic terrorists or Islamic armed Islamic extremists. And when the Syria Dirty War broke out, you had you know the official story we're supposed to believe it was all just these peaceful protests. And Assad just massacred all these innocent protesters. What actually happened was there were two different kinds of protests. There were Arab Spring protests, people calling for democracy, people opposing corruption, because this was this is a kleptocratic regime. Um, but there also were, from the start, sectarian, violent protests. And it's those protests that you, the U.S. and its allies immediately started fueling with weapons. And Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Turkey had weapons and fighters going on very quickly. And we know that in October of 2011, right after the fall of Gaddafi, the U.S. was immediately shipping weapons from Libya to Syria. So using the fruits of the regime change war in Libya to advance the regime change war in Syria. And there are writers like, um, I'm pulling up his name now, William, he's a writer for the Libertarian Institute, which is like a you know, I don't agree with them on domestic politics, but on foreign policy, I think they're spot on. And his name is William Van William Van Van Wegenen. I'll link to some of his articles. And so he's written articles, you know, trying to show that this was pre-planned. And 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 again, while I would bet that he's right, I just don't think the evidence supports it yet. And I think it won't. I think there there's there's a couple public domain sources. Uh, there's an article from Time Magazine from two thousand. Sorry, it was, um, yeah, so it was about three or four years. It was like 2008. Um, that kind of really spells out in quite a bit of detail things that were happening in Syria in terms of uh, sort of these kind of uh, proxy, quote-unquote, democracy promoting uh, grassroots that were sponsored by, you know, governments by government <laughs> yep. sponsored. And yep. I think that's that's a pretty, you know, a rel- important article. And the other right. one, there's also um, the Gene Sharp, there was a video, there was a documentary done on Gene Sharp where there's this quote-unquote Syrian activist, and that was in 2000. He says in this documentary that he started going to Boston for training in 2006. Hmm. And this guy ends up being a major um person initially in that quote unquote democratic uh, uh spontaneous um, you know revolution so this guy was being trained by gene sharp like three to four years before um and so there's this type of this evidence that this was uh, this there was planning being done and he says in that video that they were installing videos all over the place that was right. uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just that filming yeah and that happened. I mean, like there is, you know, that actually was a part when the when when the dirty war broke out. At least there there definitely was that that information uh, warfare component. And by the way, another important article that we haven't mentioned was Seymour Hirsch in two thousand seven, right. I believe, where he wrote an article for the New Yorker called "The Redirection," which was that basically Cheney was overseeing this policy in which the U.S. was going to um, stop fighting Sunni extremists in, in the Middle East and actually use them as proxies and use them as proxies against Iran and Syria. And there's a lot about Syria 
in Hirsch's article. So there's plenty of indications that this was in the works for a while. But look, in terms of you know the events but but the events of 2011, I just still think that that the uh, that we just don't have the, the facts on that yet. But I'm going to leave it there because because I, I, I don't want to get okay. too bogged down. But thank you okay. for the call. Appreciate it. All right, take care, All right. Steve, our final caller. <clears throat> and Steve, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you hit to unmute yourself. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I should have figured that out. Hi. Um, it's, uh, it's great to, to be on with you. Um, I guess I want to switch gears to uh, the old question of what is to be done because I'm six years old. Uh, I've been a peace activist, whatever that is, my whole life. I, I, the New York Times has always lied, but it hasn't lied this badly before. And the, the, the corporate media has always, you know, been the stenographer of the CIA. But it, it, it's at a level, Aaron, I, I'm telling you, and maybe your dad could tell you, <laughs> um, it's maybe more of my age. It, it, it hasn't, it wasn't like this before. I mean, it is horrible. And, um, for the George Floyd, um, murder, we, we got a, millions of people out on the streets. But um, we can't organize. But you know our, why? We can't you know organize why? our way out of a paper yeah. bag right now, yeah. Aaron. Yeah. So yeah. I'm asking you, Aaron. I I don't have any answers. Do you, Do you know why we can't get organized right now? Uh, well, look, I think it's a complicated question. <clears throat> I will say, the reason we got so many people out for the George Floyd protests was partly because the media and the Democratic Party really encourage those protests because that was used to help the democratic party. Cause they, they, they essentially, because Biden, you know, Biden was a horrible candidate. He couldn't even leave his basement at that time. That was early on at COVID. So Biden is, is sitting in his basement. So they basically used the George Floyd protest as a get out the vote <laughs> operation for, for the democratic party. And that's why the media was so gung ho about them. And for the first time we saw us media, like supporting masses of grassroots protesters. And, and then of course, you know, I have to say, uh, ignoring the, the rioting that took place and that, and that actually hurt some communities. I mean, I of course supported the George Floyd protests. I took part in them, but it was stunning just to see because they also could be used to help the democratic party get out the vote operation. The, um, you know, the concept, the, the negative consequences of the protests that came with it were just ignored because, they, because because people wanted to help defeat Donald Trump, so that's 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 why that's why that was so successful. And um, in terms of you know what what the main impediments are, um, again, as I said earlier, Obama did a great job in making everybody think that change was going to come. And, I, and Aaron, Aaron, can I can I push back on that a little bit? Sure. Um, because. So I, I live in, in the East Bay, you know, uh, San Francisco, East Bay. We, we were out for George Floyd. You know, people were out because there's a lot of hardcore leftists out here. So, I mean, they're not they're not shilling for the Democratic Party. So oh, I'm not I, saying I, the protesters no, were. But, but where saying, are they? No, like, no hold, on, yeah. hold on. I'm not saying the protesters were. I'm saying but the Democratic Party and the media used those protests as a vehicle to campaign against Trump. That's how it was used. I'm not saying that the protesters were all Democratic Party shields. And certainly in the Bay Area, I know that's, you know, that's not, 
Yeah. That's not what it is. But I'm saying that was their political use. That's why they were so celebrated and promoted in the U.S. media, which usually could give a shit. They could care less about grassroots <laughs> protests. Well, um, one last thought, and I have to say it, and I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it. So Barbara Lee, right? So in 2000. One, she cast a meaningless vote uh, against the uh, imperialist intervention in Afghanistan. So she's been writing on that uh, for the last 21 years. And now she's going to get reelected again, but basically by acclamation. Um, I, I, I just it, it just turns my stomach. I mean, and, and she so she she writes a letter to her constituents. Oh, I'm standing up to that tyrant. I'm so brave. I'm t- standing up to Putin. It's really easy for someone in America to stand up to Putin. Uh, how about standing up to Biden or your friend Nancy Pelosi? So I, I, I guess I just say all this as just I, 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 I couldn't imagine it getting this bad. Well, see, listen, I totally share your frustration. I couldn't either. Never could I have imagine that Bernie Sanders would be voting <laughs> along with Barbara Lee for a yeah. massive gift to the military industrial complex that will further inflame an awful proxy war that will arm neo-Nazis, not just neo-Nazis, but some neo-Nazis will get weapons. Well, by the way, and we haven't mentioned this yet. I mean, now we're getting uh, recently the head of Interpol warned that the influx of arms into Ukraine is going to create a massive black market influx of arms into the rest of Europe, you know, which was a a consequence that was obvious from the start. I mean, I've talked about it. Everyone could see it coming, but again, all this is just being ignored because of, and again, I have to blame five plus years of Russiagate propaganda. Can can I say, can I say though, again, for instance, out here in Barbara League territory, we didn't fall for that shit. I mean, that was your mainstream Democrats in wherever. um, Yeah. But 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 here's the thing though, nobody's saying anything about Barbara Lee. See, this is the, this is the sickening part to me. Not that not that politicians sell out because oh, breaking news, politicians yep. are sellouts. Yep. But no one is complaining about it, and, and and that's the almost like are we headed towards fascism? Uh, I question. Well. What I'm going to say is that the left has never been more weak. It's funny. In his article, Matt Duss says that the left has never been stronger. And I feel, <laughs> the, I feel the exact opposite. Like, I think we're talking about a very much different left. And obviously we are if his vision of the left includes arming and funding a neocon proxy war. Steve, let's leave it there because I have to run. Thank you very much for the call. And I, I share your pain. As Bill Clinton said, I feel your pain. <laughs> yes. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. I'll be back on here tomorrow morning with Katie Halper at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern time after we do Useful Idiots Monday morning. And that's it. Have a great rest of your Sunday. I really appreciate you coming by. Bye, everybody.